Hello and welcome to the Erwin Mitchell podcast, here to keep you up to date with legal and financial news that matters to you. My name is Nicola Handley. I'm a senior associate solicitor in the Workplace Illness Team and I'll be the host today where we'll be discussing the importance of palliative care, palliative rehabilitation and treatment following a cancer diagnosis. To do so, I'm pleased to be joined by three very special guests. The first is Mrs Linda Fee, who is one of our clients. Linda's husband, Gordon Fee, instructed Erwin Mitchell to support him following his diagnosis of mesothelioma, and we continue to support her and her family following his death in July 2020. Linda and Gordon were married for over 50 years, and they both enjoyed an active lifestyle prior to his diagnosis. They both benefited from palliative care, and she will share her experiences later. Next, we have Dr Claire Gardner, who is a Professor of Palliative Care at the University of Sheffield and Co-Director of Mesothelioma UK Research Centre. Claire has been involved in palliative care research for over 10 years and has published over 80 papers in peer-reviewed journals. Claire regularly conducts research into patient experiences and service organisation and delivery for patients following a diagnosis of mesothelioma. And finally, we're joined by Michaela Morris, who is one of our support and rehabilitation coordinators here at Erwin Mitchell. Michaela has experience of working as an occupational therapist and a specialist in palliative care. For the past five years, she's been working at Erwin Mitchell supporting clients, and she will share more about her role and client experiences later. Let's get started. Michaela, I hope you don't mind if I start with you first. I thought it might be helpful if you explained what actually is palliative care and palliative rehabilitation and how it can help people following a life-limiting cancer diagnosis. Thanks Nicola. I think they're quite difficult things to define and I'm sure from a medical point of view Claire might, might want to chip in later. Palliative care is very much care and support in the widest sense when someone has a illness that is no longer responsive to curative treatment. So there might still be what we call palliative treatment to help with symptoms, to help with quality of life, or to give people as much time as they can. The palliative rehabilitation element is very much about enabling people to self-manage their disease, their disease, have informed decisions, but also to focus not just by, on being someone who lives with cancer, but also to enable quality of life. So, for example, um, I have lovely memories of Gordon doing things in his garden and that being something that really sustained him in the later months, but also being able to spend time with family. So enabling people, so helping them through equipment, through psychological support, but also through good symptom management and psychological support, all really important as people prepare to die. Linda, Michaela just touched upon there how important it was for Gordon to be able to continue to do the things that he enjoyed in life. So I wonder if you could just share with us part of your journey and Gordon's following his cancer diagnosis and how palliative care and rehabilitation benefited both of you. Gordon and I, very early on following Gordon's diagnosis, joined the uh, support group called Messy in Leeds. And one of the first meetings we were at, there were two ladies from a hospice in West Yorkshire coming to talk about the benefits of linking in quite early on in your cancer journey with the hospice. 
and they spoke about the wide range of what was offered at the hospice much of which you know I didn't know about and they kept stressing you know please don't think a hospice is just for your last few days of life there's so much more that it can be it can it can benefit you with and so they they ended the session with saying you know if you've got a hospice nearby where you live you know please try and make connections with it now Gordon was reluctant to do that in the first few months he kind of got put on the back burner which I fully understood but we did have we do have in York a really good hospice called St Leonard's now at the end of Gordon's first year of being diagnosed with mesothelioma which had involved a lot of very invasive treatments the insertion of an indwelling pleural catheter initially subsequent inclusion on the Mars trial which involved six rounds of chemo which nearly killed him off with a number of hospital admissions with that, and then also pleural decortication, where he had a very big operation in Sheffield. And they, the operation did cause some side effects, which he had to have remedied later on, although it was seen as being successful in removing a lot of the cancer. But very sadly, despite going through all that, there was hope that he would then be fairly stable at the end of that year, but the, the CT scan showed otherwise, that the cancer had showed quite considerable progression, uh, even though he'd only been at stage one when he began his journey. So it was then, as I say, about a year after that uh, diagnosis, that it was Gordon's decision to actually contact the hospice. So we went along to a drop-in day centre called the Sunflower Centre, and they were brilliant. The welcome we got, it was just such a gorgeous atmosphere there. And whilst we were there, we had to fill in questionnaires, but Gordon was later on advised to consider coming on something called a relaxation and re-enablement course. It was 12 weeks, one day a week, full days. And he was nervous when he went initially, but soon adjusted. And in many, many ways, it became the highlight of his week. He endeared himself, and I heard this myself when I went later on, to so many of the staff and the other patients, all there with life-limiting illnesses. And Gordon described it to me as being a bit like a five-star spa hotel, being at the hospice. And he received so much support, uh, encompassing group work, one-to-one -one talking therapies, holistic treatments like mindfulness and massage, spiritual oversight making beautiful boxes to add keepsakes for the grandchildren. And then also given very sensitive guidance about end of life choices. Another thing that was amazing is an ex-pupil that he used to have at his school that he mentored was actually working at the hospice to help patients record their life stories. And so he worked with Gordon over a period with that as well. And I think, in fact, I know speaking to that gentleman, he found it very, very moving because Gordon had a very, 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 very interesting life story of having been in care, having experienced a lot of abuse and various other things and just how his resilience had brought him through life. The other thing, my benefit was knowing Gordon was so well looked after, it afforded me a day off a day for myself, which I think I just needed. I needed because I found it so intense 
the, the journey of the first year with being at Sheffield and away from home a lot of the time. And in addition to the R&R course, he also attended a breathing course, six weeks, six afternoons. And Gordon was a physio, uh, sorry, sports injury, um, did sports injuries and sports rehab. And he worked a lot with physios at the college. And so the two physios that delivered this course, Gordon got on with so well. And, uh, you know, he, he benefited a lot from that. And he was using their techniques uh, right through, really, the, the last few months of his life. I was also able to attend a carer's course there in the evening for six sessions. And my last one just coincided when we went into the lockdown, the first lockdown. And again, I was given a lot of support to help Gordon. Just after Gordon went to the hospice to register, he was put on some further chemo that was supposed to be less aggressive, but in fact, it nearly killed him. And I think it's at that point that Gordon, with the oncologist, made a decision, enough's enough. I'll just follow, I'll just go now down the route of living whatever life I've got left without the invasive treatments, which clearly don't suit me. And he was afforded four months from about November through to the April, just over four months, of relatively good health. He actually bought himself an e-bike, because prior to that, he used to do a lot of racing, but, um, bike racing. Um, we were also doing three to four mile walks quite regularly. And I almost got Gordon back to, I'd say, probably 80% of the fitness that I'd had before, because he had been incredibly fit. His GP knew that he wasn't going to stay in the house and shield, be shield. He knew that Gordon needed to get out. So the, the GP gave his blessing for him to get out on his bike and walking. Uh, and we do live near quite lovely countryside, so we weren't in crowds. But the last three months of his life uh, was when we again we were in lockdown and they were tough. His pain came back, came having had hardly any pain, need for painkillers at all. He suddenly was catapulted into a pain arena that he'd never known before. And he was not coping with the opiates that the doctor gave him. And the doctor was struggling really to find a treatment package that was going to work. Uh, so in desperation, having a husband who was at home, unable to get the medics into the house because it was all distanced support or remote support, uh, we contacted Simon Bolton, who headed up our support group. And he said, strongly, get in touch with your hospice. But we had to do it through the GP. And fortunately, the GP, who had been brilliant, gave it his blessing. And amazingly, a cancellation came that day and Gordon was admitted for, for symptom control for two weeks. And, oh, the relief in his face when he got there. And he actually said to me, he felt safe. He hadn't felt safe at home. He was given a wonderful welcome by the staff. They all knew him so well. So he didn't have that spectre feeling of going into somewhere. He actually went in in a relaxed way knowing he, he knew the setup there. He received some amazing support while he was in there, uh, both emotional support, which I think he needed because he'd found the previous few months so traumatic. Also coming to terms with knowing his life was coming to an end. And I know he had some very weepy days and the uh, pastor at the um, 
the spiritual lead at the uh, at the hospice was able to get alongside him, as did uh, many of the staff, um, and that was wonderful. And bless it, bless them, they knew we'd got our golden, and so they discharged him with much less pain the day before our golden, which we were able to celebrate with a huge street party of about 160 people and a band on the lawn, PA system for speeches, and we had loads of speeches. And Gordon was able to give a wonderful speech and he was walking around quite a bit as well. And it was the one thing he'd had on his bucket list to live to our golden. And he, despite having been told by medics, it was highly unlikely, he did. Um, there was a very rapid decline that night and it was unexpected. The hospice hadn't expected it to happen quite so quickly. They thought he would be a good few more months, but he had to be readmitted. Um, and one of the things I will say is that prior to his two weeks in the hospice for symptom control, he had originally thought he'd have hospice at home at the end of life. But having experienced the trauma of lockdown and not being able to get the medics to come to the house, we couldn't even get them at Millen to come to see us. It was all very remote. He made a change of decision about that and said he wanted to go back in the hospice at the end. And that he was able to go back in. It was only a day and a half when he got back in, but that's where he knew he'd go and be looked after and be safe. And also, unlike if he'd gone back into a hospital, I wouldn't have been able to see him. I was able to see him as were the family, still for some limited time, until his last day when we had unlimited visiting. And then I struggled having to deal with COVID, lockdowns, probate, litigation, continuing with all that after Gordon died. And I couldn't have a, you know, a hand to hold or a shoulder to cry on. It was all get on and do it. And I think because I was having to deflect people because of you couldn't contact, you couldn't hug people. I think inadvertently I deflected the grief through necessity to some extent. But come the six, about six months after Gordon died, I hit a real wobble. It was the third lockdown. We were all feeling a kind of numbed weariness with COVID anyway. And I was crying a lot. And my get up and go had got up and gone. So I contacted the hospice and said, was there any way I could get some support? And I was offered some listening support over the phone, which did make a big difference. It wasn't perhaps as ideal as face-to-face, -face, but it was certainly beneficial. Thank you, Linda, for sharing that with us. You've clearly demonstrated just a number of reasons that I don't think I could do justice to repeat of how both you and Gordon benefited from palliative care, enabling him to be there with you um, in the street party for your 50th webinar anniversary. I know that was important to both of you and you did mention it to me on a prior occasion when we met. But again, I think allowing you to have the space that you needed at a time when often people find when they're caring for somebody with um, mesothelioma, they're not able to is a real benefit. I wonder, Claire, whether you could share some of your experiences and insights in relation to the importance of palliative care and palliative rehabilitation following a cancer diagnosis? So 
I work as a researcher at the, at the University of Sheffield and I work in the Mesothelioma Research Centre. And we're just coming to the end now of uh, quite a big project, which was looking at palliative care in mesothelioma. And I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about the study and, and what we found from that study and the interesting findings from that. As I said, it was a big piece of work. So I, I could sit here all day and tell you about the bits of data that we collected, but I'll try and keep it to the, to the headlines and the most interesting parts. So the aims of the study really were twofold. Firstly, we wanted to look at what are the palliative care needs of people who have mesothelioma and their family members? And then secondly, how can we support patients um, with, with mesothelioma who have palliative care needs? And in particular, what role clinical nurse specialists have um, in helping meet patients' palliative care needs? And it was interesting there, Linda, I heard you talk about Simon Bolton, who is one of the mesothelioma clinical nurse specialists, and he obviously had an important role for you in helping facilitate palliative care. So those were the aims of the study, and um, we, we collected a lot of data from lots of different people, from both patients with mesothelioma, their family members, also collecting data from clinical nurse specialists about their role. And the, the findings of the study, I suppose there were kind of three headline, headline findings, I guess, from that piece of work. And, and firstly was that patients with mesothelioma and their family members do have quite significant palliative care needs. And... When we talk about palliative care needs, you know, I'm not just talking about the physical symptoms that are associated with mesothelioma, like pain or breathlessness, but actually there's a whole host of other different problems that can arise because of a, a mesothelioma diagnosis. And that might be things like psychological symptoms. It might be anxiety or depression or worry. It might be more spiritual concerns, existential concerns. It might be concerns for a family member or somebody who's caring for the patients. It might be people need more information or need communicating well. So when we talk about palliative care needs, we're talking about a really sort of wide range of, of holistic needs, not just about um, the physical symptoms. And Linda, again, you spoke about how the hospice helped Gordon meet all of those different needs of his and not just treating his pain, but helping with all those other aspects of, of his care as well. So that was something that very much came out of our study. Patients with mesothelioma do have quite significant palliative care needs. And then the second finding from our study was, um, was about clinical nurse specialists, mesothelioma clinical nurse specialists, and what an important role they have in helping patients who have palliative care needs. And that can be both by referring on to other services, for example, referring on to the hospice, or by helping support patients in their own right. Um, clinical nurse specialists are really highly skilled, actually, in providing palliative care. And, and the nurses we spoke to Nearly all of the mesothelioma um, nurses in the UK actually have some specialist training in palliative care, for example. So they're very highly skilled in themselves in, in delivering palliative care, but can also help refer on to those other services. And then the third finding, and one that's really interesting to talk about today, I think, is we found from our study that patients and their family members can often be really quite reluctant to engage with palliative care and again you mentioned that I think Linda with Gordon when he was earlier on in his illness he said exactly that he was reluctant we heard about the hospice but he was quite reluctant and we've heard that over and over again from, from patients and also from clinical nurse specialists and I remember one nurse saying to us when we broach palliative care you see the shutters come down 
And I thought that's a really nice way of summing it up, actually. When you talk about palliative care, people are afraid and they don't want to talk about it. And I think that's because there's a lot of misconceptions, actually, about what palliative care is and, and also what it can offer. I think sometimes when you say to somebody, have you considered palliative care? The first thing that pops into their head is that must mean I'm going to die soon. And understandably that fills people with fear and that is a very common misconception about palliative care that once palliative care is introduced that means death must be very close but actually we know from our research and from other research that palliative care can be introduced quite early actually in, a, in an illness um, pathway and can benefit people for, for weeks, months, even years for some people. So it's not always necessarily associated with death and kind of impending end of life. Some other people, when they, when they hear about palliative care, they think it, it must mean they have to give up on any other treatments they're receiving. And if you have palliative care, then that must mean that you have to give up on your chemotherapy or your radiotherapy or your immunotherapy. But again, that's not the case. You can have palliative care alongside other treatments and alongside um, other forms of therapy, and it can exist alongside those other, those other forms of care. So those were kind of the key sort of take home messages from this study. Um, and it's really interesting to hear to hear Linda talk about her experiences and Gordon's experiences and how that's reflected actually in some of our research, particularly some of this fear and, and worry about what palliative care means and what it involves. And one of the things we want to do as a, as a result of our study is to try and help address some of these misconceptions about palliative care. So we're, we're working at the moment with a, a creative design company to produce a short animation which will tell people about palliative care and mesothelioma and what it means and what it can offer and hopefully try and dispel some of those, some of those myths we hear about palliative care. Thank you, Claire. That was really interesting. And I I can say, you know, acting as a lawyer for people with mesothelioma, I very rarely hear about palliative care being in place alongside treatment. And clearly that is a misconception that needs to be um, broken down. And I can't wait to see the animation when it's finished. Michaela, I just wondered whether you can share with us what your experiences have been in relation to the benefits of palliative care and palliative rehabilitation and maybe how you support some of the clients at Erwin Mitchell. I think, Linda, for you, I'm so glad the experience, obviously very, very tough on you both, but that actually that support was there. I think, sadly, in many cases, it isn't. I'm not surprised by Claire's research because I think that's a very common story I hear. And I think the reluctance to engage with hospices is so sad because I think they are very life-affirming places but also they're places where people can very much do some of the adjustment, the adjustment of, I am going to die. Right, what's important? You know, who needs what support, including all the family? And I suppose having worked in four different hospices, I'm an absolute advocate for that. But I also think there's quite a barrier in general practice that very often for them, palliative care means the six weeks towards the end. It means end of life care. And I think so there's a lot of education there. I think um, on a personal note, I think I'm really privileged working at Owen Mitchell because the solicitors are very quick and they say, oh, we'll get Michaela in with her magic wand. I don't have a magic wand. To talk to people in the early days, um, in the stage where there's shock, there's anger very often, 
particularly in mesothelioma because of the exposure to asbestos. And my role is to really to take a temperature check and see what they need, but also what they're ready to hear and what they're not ready to hear. And that might be at some point you might want to pop along and see your local hospice. And in other people's cases, right, I'm going to get in as many holidays as I can. Can you get me some insurance? So it, it can be a huge spectrum. And also, I think it can be hugely different within one family. I mean, one of the inspirations of Gordon and Linda for me, as well as seeing them dance at the mesothelioma ball, was that actually their openness and it was very much doing everything together. And that included dealing with, with Gordon's illness. And that sadly isn't the case in some families where there can be denial, there can be resistance, a lot of it fueled by fear. And I think if they've got someone outside the family who maybe can just see that and help them have those discussions or help people deal with thing, things in different paces, different stages, then that's a good thing. I also think that in the, the medical terms, there's very much the focus on treatment and on palliative treatment. The very often the other things aren't seen as important because it can be a full-time job, but with blood tests, scans, pleural drain surgery, chemo, radiotherapy, that the other things can be, be missed. So it's really good to be there. And I think, as Claire said, having Simon and the other meso nurses is so important because they are specialists, whereas the GPs and very often the lung nurses, meso is something they don't see very often. And the patients, their families become experts. And I'm very aware that in Erwin Mitchell, because we see it very much, the claim is something that goes alongside their illness. It shouldn't be the main thing, but there's so much going on in life that if myself or Macmillan nurses or meso or the hospice can help provide that other support. So worry about finances or if, for example, the person with meso is the main carer for their husband, wife, how are they going to manage that? So there's so many things that people are worrying about that if we can provide that support or help them have those discussions so that their treatments are informed choices as well as what's right for them. So you gave a great example there, Linda, of where Gordon got to that stage of, no thanks, that's enough for me. I want to, to live till I die. I don't want it to be all about chemo. But there might be very different experiences for other people. So giving people that chance to live their disease as themselves, you know, I think it can be difficult. Well, you can't give up. You've got to have every treatment or all that kind of language that we hear I just think is so unhelpful that actually, you know, a life limiting diagnosis affects everyone differently. So we need to support them as openly as we can, giving them the opportunities that are available there for support, but also to respect their way of doing it, which might be their way of doing life as well as doing death. One thing that I'm just going to put out to anybody to answer really at this point is, is how important do you think it is in relation to using the correct terminology when communicating about palliative care because we hear a lot of phrases that often people are worried about using such as end of life and how can we overcome 
not to be afraid of those phrases. So, Michaela. Thank you. This is a real passion of mine that actually language is really important. It reflects the way we think, but also it helps people on their journey. And that actually by talking around things, dressing them up or not using plain language, I think is not helpful. I'm a great believer in using language that is about living. And I apologise to all the people who use this word, but it is a word I find very difficult, which is terminal, because that's the end of a train line. Whereas life limiting, a life restricting, or just I'm living until I die. And I, it's so important. But actually, and I hope this is your experience, Linda, that actually by talking it about it, knowing what Gordon wanted and what he didn't want, that's helpful for everyone in the same way that people talking about what they want for their funeral or what they don't want is important. Yeah, I'm a great believer in being honest, but also that involves a lot of listening. So I can be all, you know, I'm going to be honest and straightforward, but actually I've got to see, is that person ready for it? So you're never, you know, we can't dive in there, but also we all see it and view it differently. So we have to be so sensitive. I mean, I completely agree with you, Michaela, that um, it's really important to be sort of honest and clear about what terms we used. And we do often hear of people using synonyms for palliative care because they know that people are scared about palliative care. So you'll often hear people say, you know, symptom management or best supportive care, quality of life care, all this other different terminology is thrown around. We're talking about palliative care, we just don't want to say it because we know that people are, are frightened of it. And I think creating more terms for the same for the same thing is only going to increase confusion and make things more complicated and i think as you said michaela what we need to do is to be clear about what we mean by palliative care demystify palliative care stop people being afraid of what it is and what it means and not try and not try and do palliative care by the back door by replacing the word palliative care with all of these other different 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 terms and, and, and phrases so yeah I very much agree with what Michaela said. Gordon was by nature a very open man he he was always wanting to be one step ahead of the the game as it were with uh, any medical appointment you know because he, he had got a fair grasp of of medical things but he he didn't hide away I think that was the thing I'd say. Uh, and so he that he wanted always to know as much as he, he could about what was happening to him. So I think that's on the actual medical journey that he's going on. Yes, we did share in depth together. And I think, you know, we, we had to journey with our own grief journeys separately. But then also um, we had to come together as well at various points. I think, you know, the CT scan results, they, they always were big days, you know, and uh, they could leave you in a very sort of fragile state afterwards. But I think the there will have been things that Gordon probably, when he was at the hospice for symptom control, pain management for about two weeks, I know that when he was in there, he was probably, um, and when he was on the R&R &R course, the Relax and Re-enablement course, I know he did a lot of talking with people like you, Michaelis, with the, the specialists, 
the social workers, the occupational therapists, the spiritual leads, and, and some of the medical staff. And so it's possible that he was able to feel free to do that because he was he was there without me and didn't want to burden me. And I know he was desperately wanting his end of life journey for me to be spared in some ways some of the spectra spectra that I had with dealing with my father dying with lung cancer at home when I couldn't get the medics out. And again, knowing he'd got a lung condition, that that had been playing in my mind, the fear of that. And so I think I was reassured by the hospice when I went to the carers course, you know, that that wouldn't happen. They will try incredibly hard to avoid that happening. Things weren't perhaps as easy as it might have been getting back into the hospice or when he was in the hospice for symptom control because of it was COVID and everybody was having to nurse, everybody socially distanced, you know, with the mask wearing and it was limited visiting times. But no, I think I wholeheartedly agree with what Michaela and Claire have said there, that as being open as possible, but also having to deal with each individual as an individual, because I, I've met people at Messi, the support group that Simon heads up, who absolutely froze when we mentioned the benefits of going to the hospice or linking up with the hospice. But we were able to help a number of people who were struggling with enormous pain to face, as it were, to, to accept the rightness of contacting the hospice. Uh, and they did so. And the, the, the benefits were enormous. You know, we were able to find that out. I'm very aware as you speak, Linda, that I have quite a large number of clients, but also for myself, family and friends who have died during COVID who haven't had that positive experience. And I think it's really important to recognise mm. that people are experiencing particularly complicated grief mm. because of COVID, of not being able to spend that time. And I can think of one family that Nicola knows well, where they weren't able to get a place at the hospice and sadly mm. he died in an open bay in a ward in a mm. hospital and if there is only one good thing of covid for me it's that actually palliative care teams are well used and versed to talking about these things but actually it's been a steep learning curve for the nhs most of the nhs staff are not used to doing dying at that mm. rate and that speed and in that distress across mm. ages, ethnicities, without families involved and them being the ones. So I think if COVID has made us talk more about death and dying, mm. COVID has made us look at mm. our communication around death and dying, then that has to be a good thing. Um, the other thing I just want to mention was that I'm aware that because of the demographic of people living with mesothelioma, many of them are grandparents. And actually that not using straightforward language is so important. So I, I, as you can probably tell, I'm a South London girl. I was not from Yorkshire, but I was quite surprised when I got to Yorkshire that dying is turned, he's passed. And that's a, a very much a local thing. Um, but I think it's become a wider thing. And I think for a child, granddad's passed. What does that mean? 
Has he passed the tomato ketchup? Has he passed the bus? Has he passed the park? That actually being courageous and saying, it's really sad, grandpa has died, is actually really, really important. Thank you, Michaela. Um, I just got one last question for everybody, really. Um, and it's normally one of those typical questions to close a, a conversation. But if there's one thing that you could maybe hope for the future for somebody who's considering palliative care and that you could change or maybe one takeaway comment or thought, what, what would it be? And I think I'll go, if possible, to Claire first. I guess, you know, thinking to our research and what we found, if there's one thing we could hope for as a consequence of, of the research that we've done, I think it is just that, 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 you know, we want to get people talking about palliative care. We want to get people thinking about palliative care and asking questions about palliative care and not being afraid of it because we know it has huge, huge positive benefits for people. If only we can kind of get over that hump of, of fear and stigma really associated um, with, with the terminology. So I think that that's kind of my hope for the future, that we can use some of our research to hope kind of facilitate that for some people, to take away some of the fear about palliative care and get people talking about it, engaging with it and, and accepting it. Thank you, Claire. I know that I often talk about it, but we'll do more frequently when I think that it's a topic to be discussed with a client because as you say it is a really important part of somebody's journey following um, a diagnosis of mesothelioma. Um, Linda what would you respond to my question about maybe hopes for the future for somebody else in Gordon's place? Anything that can happen really that's going to remove the spectre that is held in some people's psyche about hospice and palliative care. Uh, for certain, Gordon's, the benefit that Gordon received, both for attending those courses, you know, it gave him a fresh spring in his step emotionally and physically really. And it, there was a, there was a buoyancy about him when he was actually engaging with things that the hospice were offering. And yes, there was the reality as well that he knew that he was going to die, but there was a, a richness about what he was experiencing. And I think because he was so open, there were many, many spin-offs of reunions with people, his gymnastic team that won the British Championships from 12 years, sorry, 50 years earlier, 50, odd, no, 52, twice they won the British Championship. They all came together and you know, I think they were staggered to see Gordon looking so buoyant. And this was when he got his, during his last four months of being well enough to enjoy doing these things. So I think for me, the palliative care journey with Gordon afforded him a, a level of life that perhaps he, he wouldn't have had before. Thank you, Linda. That's really heartwarming to know, mm. actually, because it's sometimes people might say to me they feel like their life's been taken away. And actually, you're saying that palliative care can give you a bit of that life back at mm. the most important time mm. possible. And 
I completely agree with hospices. I've been to many hospices and they are lovely places and I'll mm. happily spend an afternoon in them. And I think we've, we've got to continue to kind of break down people's fears of, of going into a hospice and, and maybe thinking that they're never going to come out again. Mm. So lastly, Michaela. Both Claire and Linda's I absolutely agree with. So trying to think of something different, but the two things I would say, well, three actually, cheeky, um, is live life to the full absolutely that have those conversations or shall I or maybe I won't have those conversations today um the second thing I'd say is for all of us you know um whatever age we are whatever connection we have with cancer why don't we all look up our local hospice and just see what it's about and get involved go and buy a sunflower uh sponsor a a day therapy day, whatever it is, but just know where your local hospice is because you might be the person at the bus stop saying to someone, oh, maybe you should go and talk to the hospice about that. You know, know where your hospice is. The other thing is a little plug for the Maggie centres because they're an enormous support as well, particularly when people are doing the hospital thing and hospitals can be quite lonely and mechanical places that if your hospital is lucky enough to have a Maggie Centre, they're great sort of sanctuaries, but also they are providing a lot of the courses like the ones Gordon did, where some hospices haven't opened up, up again. And they also do a lot of those online. So they are something you can access. And yeah, enjoy life. Enjoy life. Thank you for that, Michaela. And thank you to Claire and Linda for giving us such incredible insights into palliative care, rehabilitation and treatment. And that's it for today. Thanks for listening to the Urban Mitchell podcast. If you found it interesting, then join us for our next episode. Stay safe.